I don't know about you guys, uh, I really needed tonight, I, I've been really excited about our, our worship time to this point, and I think what we will do in our teaching time will continue in that. I think this passage of Scripture, and really all of First Peter, is a love story of sorts to the church who is discouraged. And so if any of you feel yourself discouraged at your present place and your walk with Christ, if any of you feel discouraged by your job or any number of circumstances that come your way in life, I want you to hear tonight that as we have spoken through the entirety of this sermon series, that where there is Christ, there is hope. Let that be an encouragement to you, as I'm sure it was for those who were reading it in the time that Peter was writing. Don't forget the incredible circumstances under which the early church was unfolding under the Roman Empire when Peter was writing. Incredible oppression, incredible persecution of the church. And yet Peter reminds his people, do not be discouraged, do not lose hope, because where there is Christ, there is Hope. While certainly there may be temporary things that cause you discouragement, ultimately your encouragement rests not in your circumstance, but in the secure victory of Christ. Remember that Christ's victory is our victory. What he did upon the cross and the subsequent resurrection is something that should transform not only our individual lives, but the way that we encounter the ministry that God has given us to do to transform the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. Reminds me of the story of David and Goliath. And he's been walking through our daily Bible reading. It's kind of where we are right now in 1 Samuel. Think about the way that David approached his encounter with Goliath, the kid who had no business going out and representing all of Israel in front of this giant of a man. Yet he walks out with authority, with no armor. Why? Because he knew the promise of God upon his life. He knew that God had plans for him. He had just spoken over his life that he was going to be king of all of Israel. And so he knew that God's promises could not be thwarted by even a giant coming to threaten his life and the people of Israel. And the same thing should be true of us. We have certain victories spoken over us by the work of Christ. And that should be an encouragement to us in any circumstance. What Christ has done upon the cross is a guarantee for us that we can stand in front of any giant without armor, knowing that Christ in us, the hope of glory in us, is bigger than anything this world can throw at us, regardless of what attacks may come our way. As a result of our gospel-centered ministry, we know that our salvation, our future hope in Christ is secured. We don't have to worry about what happens in the future. We know what will happen in the future. Peter is saying to us tonight, as he was saying to the early church, you don't have to fear. You don't have to be discouraged. The enemy doesn't have to steal your joy in these circumstances because Christ has gone before you. And you are safe. You are secure. You are victorious. And maybe not temporarily. Some of you will lose your life. Some of you will feel discouraged initially for a time. But ultimately, eternally, this promise is yours. As we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
verses 15 to 22, if you want to turn with me tonight. We read this last week, at least the whole section here of 8 to 22, and we focused on the first section of this passage of Scripture last week. We're going to focus on the second section this week. Here's what Peter writes, beginning in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, notice it doesn't say if you are, but when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right. Now, when you read this passage initially, you can see that there are some interesting things that Peter is talking about here. We're going to kind of break some of these down to get to the overarching, encouraging truth that is presented in this passage. Uh, This is what we call, in some ways, a problematic passage because it presents some interesting interpretations, depending on how you read this passage of Scripture, specifically about this idea of Jesus going to proclaim in the Spirit to the spirits who are in prison. So what is... Peter mean when he says that Jesus in the spirit went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. For us to understand, I think, what Peter is trying to do here, I think we have to understand contextually what he means by this specific phrase, because a lot of people have taken this and built entire theologies around, I think, bad interpretations of this passage of Scripture, all right? So what does Peter mean when he says that Jesus in the Spirit went to proclaim to the spirits in prison? Well, traditionally, there have been three interpretations for this passage of Scripture, three interpretations of what it means that Jesus went in the Spirit to go proclaim to the spirits in prison uh, the hope of Jesus Himself, of redemption, reconciliation, freedom from judgment, really. The first thing is this. Some would say that what Peter means here is that Jesus descended into hell. This would be the time between His death and resurrection. And that while He was there... He went to give some or all of the spirits there a second chance at salvation. So some believe that while Jesus was pre-resurrected, post-death, he went into hell. And while he was there, he offered some 
or all spirits in prison, a opportunity for a second salvation. Now, if you've studied your Bible, if you know theology, you know that post-mortem salvation or a second chance for salvation after death goes against the entirety of the body of Scripture that we have present here today. So initially, I think that this this particular passage, uh, interpretation of this passage has some issues. Specifically, you look at like Luke 16, where the rich man who has been so bad to this impoverished guy named Lazarus dies, and he's on one side in the lake of fire, and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, and he says, I wish I could get out of here. If only I had the opportunity to get out of here. I would go tell my friends how terrible it is. This guy obviously desires to repent of his actions if he could find freedom from the torment of hell, and yet there is no opportunity for him to do so. Well, some would say, well, it's not that he's going to present it to all, but just to the ones who rejected Noah before the flood came. Well, that makes not a lot of sense either. Why would Jesus offer second salvation to only some in hell and not everyone in hell? So, And beyond that, it doesn't really fit with the context of what Peter is trying to write to the early church there. What is Jesus going to offer second salvation to the people in hell? How does that in any way offer encouragement to the early persecuted church? In fact, it might not offer them encouragement at all. So you're telling me that these people can come and burn us alive at the stake. They can tear us apart after clothing us in animal skin. And they can still have a chance once they've been condemned to hell to be saved after that. It doesn't really fit with the context of Peter. So we're going to reject that possibility as one uh, that explains this particular text of Scripture. Secondly... They don't say that Jesus didn't descend into hell to give spirits a second chance, but rather he proclaimed over the fallen angels a specific group of beings his secured victory. And the reason that they would interpret it this way is that they say that the demonic influence that is kind of governing the persecution of the church is reminded consistently by Jesus Christ that he has victory over them. So he's saying to the early church, hey guys, listen, do not be discouraged. These fallen, demonic, angelic beings that are causing all this persecution. Listen, Jesus went and he proclaimed his victory over them. So you don't have to worry. Some questions here would be, well, what would be the purpose of this? First of all, does Jesus need to go and find a particular group of angelic beings to go taunt them and proclaim his victory over them? Does Jesus need three days of bragging rights over the angelic beings who have fallen, some sort of victory parade? I don't think so. I don't think it sets up with what we see about the conclusion of the gospel narrative and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ultimate victory is not secure until he is raised from the dead. So what does he have to proclaim while his body is still in the grave? Not until he is resurrected does he exemplify the promise that we have, the hope that we have for all of eternity, that all the things that have been a result of the fall have now been overcome in the resurrection event of Christ. Beyond that, it would be a lot for the early reader in the early church to assume here Uh, they'd have to have some really intense discernment to be able to pick up on 
Peter's intent if this is what he meant by Jesus going to preach to the prisoners, uh, spirits who are in prison. So I don't like that interpretation either. But here's where I think the right interpretation comes around. Thirdly, it could be said that this passage, in this passage, that Peter is offering encouragement because of how the Spirit of Christ worked earlier through Noah. And so you remember back in 1 Peter 1, 11, Peter writing about how the Spirit of God worked upon Old Testament prophets by saying this, verse 11, and inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, Old Testament prophets, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So we've already seen in Peter's writing him suggesting the idea that the Spirit of Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, would descend upon prophets in the Old Testament to proclaim both coming judgment and salvation through repentance. All right? So this is not a new message for Christ. It's different in its incarnation in the New Testament, but Christ, through the prophets of the Old Testament, has been proclaiming repentance as the way to escape judgment, even through people like Noah. So, why would Noah's story, if we're saying that the right interpretation is that what he's saying here is that Jesus went on Noah... His spirit went up on Noah to proclaim repentance as the way to escaping judgment. How would that contextually offer encouragement to Peter's audience? So let's draw some parallels. Look back with me at Genesis chapter 6 for a second. Story of Noah, one of our childhood favorites. Any old man with a white beard is always appealing, especially when animals are involved. Cute animals, right? So let's see what the Lord is saying here. Beginning in verse 9, chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So what do we see here? We see some very similar characteristics to what we see in the time of Peter's writing of his first epistle. The earth was full of corruption. Yet in the midst of this corruption, there was a righteous minority that God chose to raise up to offer salvation to those who Repented. We see this idea picked up on by the writer of Hebrews 11, whoever that is, in verse 7 when he says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here's what we see in the life of Noah. Noah endured the attacks of man... 
and worked to secure salvation in the midst of certain judgment. The Spirit of Christ came upon Noah, giving the people there spirits who were in prison by their sin and now in prison in hell and judgment and wrath a chance to repent. They did not listen. They rejected Noah. They rejected the message of repentance. And as a result, they were judged. The same thing is true in the time that Peter is writing. The early church, a righteous minority, offering repentance through Christ as a way to escape condemnation, yet are being persecuted because of their message. Further, Noah is an example of God's faithfulness to withhold the faithful from ultimate judgment. So not only do we see the Lord working in the Noah story to offer freedom from judgment to those who even reject a call to repentance through a righteous minority who are being persecuted because of their message we also see the Lord bring out of coming judgment this righteous minority in salvation. Maybe there's temporary persecution. Maybe people are making fun of you while you're building this ridiculously large boat when it's never rained before. You're telling people, hey, water's going to start coming from the sky. It's going to cover the earth. And you're going to wish you were in this boat with all these stanky animals. There may be temporary persecution. People may make fun of you for a while, but I promise you it's better than God's ultimate wrath. Noah was eventually saved from God's ultimate judgment, even if he had to suffer from man's judgment for a period of time. And so will we be saved. And Peter says baptism is an example of this. Look down at verse 20 and 21 in 1 Peter. Baptism kind of shows the salvation that God has given us. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a sign that we have been rescued from coming judgment in the same way the ark rescued Noah and his family. The water came as judgment, but the ark allowed them to rise above this judgment. Likewise, judgment is coming, but in Christ... We have been raised out of this water and into salvation. And that's the picture that we see in baptism, that Christ is our ark. What he has built has secured us freedom from this condemnation. He's lifted us out of the water of the wrath of God into certain salvation. So summing that up now, Peter is challenging us to recognize that we can withstand the attacks of of the enemy by trusting in God's impending judgment and certain victory. Peter is challenging us to recognize that we can withstand the attacks of the enemy by trusting in God's impending judgment 
and certain victory. Listen, guys, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're discouraged. I know you're watching your families die. But remember that this is temporary. And remember what's at stake here. Think about Noah. Think about Noah. Think about how he was persecuted. How he was made fun of whenever he was walking these animals on a boat. It was sun shining. There was no water in sight. Everybody's making fun of him, persecuting him for saying that judgment was coming. God was withholding his wrath upon them while Noah felt the wrath of the people around him. But Noah did not let that discourage him. Because he knew the certainty of God's coming wrath. And he knew that even though they were making fun of him and they were possibly even doing bad things to him and his family, he stayed the course. He kept proclaiming the message that would lead them to salvation because he knew God's wrath was coming. And he didn't want to see anyone fall victim to that. Same thing is true for us, guys. We've got a message to proclaim. God's wrath is coming. And the only hope of escaping this certain wrath is Jesus Christ. We can't let these little things that are happening to us, even if that little thing is death, discourage us from the greater reality that is coming. Even if we lose our life here, they will lose their life for eternity. They will be tormented for eternity. Our torment here, it's temporary. We have to have a bigger vision of what is going on, leading us to faithfulness even when we are weary, leading us to faithfulness even when we are discouraged. We have been set apart to proclaim coming judgment and repentance as the only way to escape that certain judgment. Jesus has built for us an ark, and we are calling others to get on board and to face of his wrath being poured upon the earth. We can withstand the attacks of the enemy if we trust in God's impending judgment and certain victory. So let's break down those two things for a second. When we trust in God's ultimate justice, we don't have to have immediate justice. Notice down at the bottom of this passage the way that Peter ends by declaring that Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God. Now with the angels has authority and power. All those things, every major thing has been subjected to him. Christ has all power and all authority. And we can rest in the fact that if we allow people to persecute us and not demand instant justice, but continue to turn the other cheek and proclaim coming judgment that Christ will ultimately bring ultimate justice on those people who reject us, persecute us and reject him. This is why it's important for us to believe things like the last judgment and hell. Because you and I don't have to demand immediate justice for the way that we are wronged as the church. Because we trust that God, who judges justly, will ultimately bring justice where it is deserved. It's not for us to judge, it's for Him to judge. Our purpose is not to 
when we get offended, immediately drop the gospel and demand justice there. No, our purpose is even in the midst of injustice, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of discouragement, to continue forward the gospel ministry because we recognize the seriousness of the wrath that is coming. We've got to continue to proclaim even when people persecute us. We don't stop building the ark or calling people to get on board because they make fun of us. We don't stop doing this stuff because they put us in jail. We don't do this kind of, stop doing this stuff because they beat us, they fire us. They break up with us. They defriend us on Facebook, God forbid. We move forward because judgment is coming. And the judgment is not good, guys. Think about Noah. Eight people. Eight. That's it. Everybody else, gone. We trust in God's ultimate justice and therefore even when injustice is poured upon us as a result of our faithfulness to the gospel ministry, we don't have to worry because God will be our defender. Continue forward, moving in the gospel ministry, knowing what is coming. And then we don't have to have a present victory when we know that we have eternal victory. We don't have to worry about making ourselves look better or less ridiculous because our only concern is Christ. Even if we lose small victories along the way, we know that our ultimate victory is secure in Christ. You know, a lot of times, even in ministry, Whenever we're walking with Christ, we can feel defeated. Anybody ever felt defeated? You know, whether it be sin or a circumstance or any number of things that can bring about defeat in our lives. I remember when I was at Florida Boulevard in Baton Rouge, my friend Travis and I, we began a service much like this one. And there was a whole mess of dysfunction in it. And to this point... You know, we were kind of like golden boys, and anything that we had touched was like immediately successful. And so we just assumed that journey was what it was called. When we started, it was going to be super successful, and it was not. It was terrible. And a lot of bad things happened along the way. And I remember when we shut that baby down, when I, when I left that thing after it was collapsing, just feeling so defeated in ministry. I was like, God, I thought I was being faithful here. I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. And I just feel like I don't don't even need to be in ministry anymore. Like, why am I in ministry? If I'm just going to start doing things and they're going to fail and I'm going to be more discouraged after the fact than in the fact, then why am I in ministry at all? And the Lord taught me so much about humility and pride through that period of defeat that it led to a victory because I learned so many things in the failure of that ministry that I've done differently in this ministry and certainly in ministries to come. I'm not perfect by any means any now, even now. 
But we can't let these temporary failures, as a result even of our own imperfection, cause us to live in defeat. No, we have to remember that we have a certain victory. And even if we fail along the way in our ministry, and we fail in reaching someone for Christ, or we fail in in bringing about this ministry, or fail in feeding this country who's uh, in need of food. I mean, if we fail in these things, we ultimately recognize that the success of those things is not dependent upon us, but rather the work of Christ and the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life. We have to rest in the victory of Christ, even in the midst of our defeats, knowing that there is something greater going on that God is pushing us to to reflect the character and nature of Christ. Certainly, in the ministry of Jesus, there are times where the people around him thought he was defeated. Did it look like victory whenever he was being arrested? Did it look like victory whenever he was brought before the authorities of that day and condemned? Did it look like victory whenever he was beaten beyond recognition? Did it look like victory whenever he was carrying his cross up a hill and couldn't even do that? Did it look like victory when he was being nailed or when he was speared or when he was stuck with a sword he was spat upon? Did it look like victory when he's put in the grave? No. But he was victorious three days later. And that's what we have to remember. That's what Peter is saying to the early church. Listen, guys, it doesn't look good now. It looks like you're being defeated. And a lot of you are walking around like you are defeated. But do not do that. Don't let the enemy have that satisfaction. Christ has already promised you certain victory. And what a testimony in the midst of of circumstances that should call us to be discouraged and cause us to be defeated, for us to stand firm with joy and victory behind us and not allow those circumstances to dictate the way that we respond. But rather, the certainty of Christ behind us and the work of the cross behind us and knowing that ultimately God has all authority and all power That Christ sits with all authority and all power in the heavenlies. That we move forward. Not allowing what the enemy is throwing at us to take what we know is rightfully ours. And that is certain victory in Christ. Be encouraged. Listen, Christ suffered once for sins. And he was righteous. He didn't deserve it, but he did it for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, yes, but made alive in the Spirit. The same Spirit that he went and proclaimed in the Old Testament to the spirits who are now in prison. And they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared which a few that as eight persons were brought to safely. So listen, the ark pulled those people out of persecution and went into salvation. Baptism is exactly, is showing exactly the same thing for you. It corresponds to this. Showing that you were saved now, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have been saved. 
He's gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. Christ suffered, gave his life, but ultimately he was glorified. And he considered the present suffering to be worth the final reward. The question is, do you? Question for the early church. Here's my question for you tonight. Do you trust in God's justice? Do you trust in God's justice? That's two facets here. Are you proclaiming that God will bring judgment because he is just? That's part of the gospel, isn't it? It's not a part that we like to throw out there. It's not the attractive side of God. It's not his good side, you know. It's the the side that he always fights the other people to get on the other side of the picture so he can show his, his good profile side. That's the other side. It's the part that he deletes or untags himself in on Facebook pages because it doesn't show or flatter him, you know. It's his bad side for some of us. But it's a necessary part of who he is. Do you proclaim that? Do you put that forward? Because ultimately, what does saved mean if you don't know what you were saved from? What significance is the ark if there's no water coming? What does it matter if Christ died, was raised again on the third day, if there's still condemnation that you don't know about? Do you proclaim God's coming judgment? And then ultimately, do you trust him to be your defender? David Platt gave an incredible sermon at Together for the Gospel last week about being willing to give your life for the spreading of the gospel. And the only way that you'll be able to come to that point where you're literally willing to lay down your life for the gospel is if you think that justice is not found here, but ultimately found in the hereafter when Christ judges all. You'll be willing to lose your life here to go proclaim judgment that's coming to people who've never even heard the name of Jesus. If you believe that this is not it, Secondly, do you walk in Christ's victory? Who reigns over you? The Bible says here that Jesus Christ has gone into heaven, right hand of God, sitting with angels, authorities, and powers who have been subjected to him. Who has control of your life? Do you follow the gospel in as much as it's convenient to you? Do you proclaim in as much as it's convenient to you? Do you follow Jesus until you are discouraged? Or in every circumstance, do you recognize that Christ is unfolding something before you and it's a grace to you by which you can know him more? He is sovereign. Nothing that's happening around you is by accident. And I'm going to trust that he's got a purpose, even in the midst of this temporary persecution or discouragement, in which I can know him more and proclaim him more boldly and sometimes more profoundly. Because people don't expect me to proclaim him in this circumstance. 
You see this all the time when people are diagnosed with cancer or some other kind of life-threatening disease. You think of guys like Jim Patterson or Papa Dave Miller, these guys who've been diagnosed with cancer. And then in the midst of possibly life-threatening things, are still standing firm and proclaiming, listen, that this is not it. I still have victory over cancer. Maybe not here. Maybe not now. But Christ's victory upon the cross guarantees me that this will not defeat me forever. That's a disease thing. Pastors who were imprisoned in Libya, Nigeria, who were imprisoned in Iran right now, they can say the same thing about their physical constraints. I may be imprisoned here, and if I have to be imprisoned here for the gospel, then so be it, because ultimately I've been set free. Do you walk in Christ's victory? My fear is that many of us don't even face any persecution in our life. Because Christ doesn't have victory over us, the opinion of others has victory over us. And so we're not even bold in what we proclaim. Because we care more about what they think of us than what Christ thinks of us. And so the enemy has victory over us because we appeal to our brothers more than we do to Christ. But if Christ has victory over you truly and he is the one that controls everything that you seek and desire, then the proclamation of the word of God should be coming forth from our mouth at all times, regardless of what other people think. Because who cares if they reject us when we've been accepted by God? Kind of reminds me of high school or junior high. Remember how big a deal things were in high school? Right? Or junior high. Do you remember these days? I would not go back to them for bazillions of dollars. Right? Like literally, I remember one morning I woke up and I had a, like a pimple on my cheek. Right? And it was like the first like big kind of zit deal, you know? And like you couldn't do anything about it. Like I was going to school that day as, you know, Jared Pizza Face Richard. Like it was just going to happen. Right? And you remember, you think, oh my God, what are they going to think about me? What are the girls going to say? Am I going to get made fun of today? Like the whole day you're stressing out, which only causes more pimples. Uh, It's kind of like this, you know, unending circle of violence against yourself. But we make these big things about each other. And we, even relationships in high school, we think that they are the defining things of our lives, right? But it's a four-year period of our life. You know what I mean? We make it such a big deal while we're in it, but it's only four years of our life. And I can't tell you how many kids I've like counseled at summer camp and stuff that are like, I just, I'm not accepted. People don't love me. I've got you know, self-image issues, all this kind of stuff they put forward as a result of my time in high school. And every time I'm saying, gosh, just get some perspective. You know, like I know it seems terrible now that you're never going to outlive this, but it's four years Something better is coming. It's called college. (laughs) Go Tigers. Right? The same expectations that were in high school are not in college. You don't have to be a star quarterback to date some good-looking girl because college is different. 
That's what I looked forward to. Because I have the body of a reader. <laughs> right? <laughs> and the same thing is true in our life here. Right? Like we, we make this such a big deal. We make life here such a big deal. And we think that having this person's favor or that person's favor is really what is, what gonna, is gonna make us happy. But our life here is like high school, even smaller in the spectrum of eternity. Like, don't make this bigger than it is. Recognize the greatness of eternity and the certainty of God's coming judgment and let that be what motivates your life. Having been rescued by Christ, having been reconciled by Christ and then given the ministry of reconciliation up on top of that, that is our purpose because it's eternal. Significant. It's not temporary and finite. May we be a bold people who proclaim in the face of adversity the gospel of Christ, knowing that his victory is our victory. And Stephen and the band come back out. I just want you to consider for a second where you are. Just kind of maybe go to the Lord in prayer. Just kind of close your eyes and just think. Do I live my life like this? Or do I make small things, really big things that prevent me from fully getting on board with this church thing? Am I suffering persecution at all? Is that because I live in America? Or because I'm not really doing anything to get persecuted for? Do I live in the victory of Christ? Does He reign over me? Or do I live in a way that knows that He reigns over me? Because He reigns over you regardless of whether you acknowledge or not. Or do I live in light of the fact that he is up there with all authority and all power? Every mighty thing being subjected to him. Noah built a boat, got made fun of it. Made of made fun of it, made of for it. But yet that art brought about salvation probably worth getting made fun of whenever you're riding around in a bunch of water. Early church, they didn't just get made fun of. They got burned alive. They got torn apart. Died for their faith. But it brought some to salvation. In eternity, looking back on that, I probably say they, they would probably say it's worth it. What about you? about these temporary things getting made fun of losing relationships you know somewhat minor things that we face here compared to what people face all over the world when you look back on your life in eternity and you see all the people that you did not tell because you were afraid will you say that that relationship or that job was worth it
that relationship was worth it? Are you to look back in joy? Knowing that, yeah, you sacrificed a little bit, but look, who got on that boat with you. People drowning, guys. Will you reach out a hand, even if it costs you something? Father, seal us up in our hearts, this truth. And God, I pray that as we stand and sing in just a moment, we would proclaim boldly praise to our God for sending Christ to pull us out of the water and place us in certain victory. God, we love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus.